Mostly everything you see eventually on the paper it has gone through the press at some point. I've made that texture or that monotype flat or that color. And then it finds its way or, you know, I incorporate it into like a larger composed work or, or book arts. I do occasionally use found material that I haven't sort of made or generated myself, but I would say that happens less often. So I'm definitely paper focused. I have a lot of hopes of expanding that, you know, as time and life allows. But right now I am deep into that. I start with wood, usually as the matrix of my printmaking. You know, I do a little sort of pronto lithography or collagraphs or sort of printmaking that's not wood-based. But the woodblock feels like such an autobiographical symbol for me. And it also referenced, like you were saying at the very beginning, just the Northwest and where I'm from and place in terms of the trees and the landscape that it's still providing a lot of fodder for me and a lot of inspiration, just the bare wood and then also just the various papers that are printed from it. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 265th episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Kelda Martinson, who spoke with me just outside of Seattle, where she currently lives and works at North Seattle College. We talk a lot about Kelda's print-based works and how those all come together through various printing processes, most of which incorporate handmade paper, sometimes found paper, but especially how they change and differ from each body. There will be small collages, large collages, artist books, and all of that sort of gets diffused through the idea of location and place. It could be a color that informs a work or balancing that out with a really spectacular use of muted colors and very interesting textures. In addition to being an artist and a professor, we also talk a bit about the various curated exhibitions and shows that she's been a part of and is really interested in kind of bringing together community. And of course, we talk about how all of this affects our processes, how it changes over time, how we might move to a place and have that really kind of change the work. Or likewise, we might interact with people and that might also change the work or to take a new approach So it's a wonderful conversation about process, and it's all coming up, so stay tuned for that. Definitely check out more work at keldamartinson.com, and you can also find her and follow her on Instagram at kelda underscore gene. If you're checking out Studio Break for the first time, just a reminder, head on over to studiobreak.com. we got a bunch of different artists up there. Each of those posts have images of the artist's work as well as links to their website. You can listen to their interview right on studiobreak.com or just subscribe to the podcast. Then you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. You can find Studio Break on social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And, of course, be sure to follow on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those brief announcements, we're going to dive right into this interview with Kelda Martinson. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Kelda Martinson, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Dave? Excited. Super excited to have you on. And, you know, I guess you're joining us from a different time zone. You're in the, I guess, Seattle area. Is that correct? Yep. I live in Seattle. Um, I'm in the West Seattle neighborhood, sort of the south end of that. Right on. Right on. So very excited. I know, again, it's a little bit of a time adjustment, so I really appreciate you fitting this in. And, you know, super excited to talk to you about your work and 
you know, I guess, you know, to start it all off, I'm especially curious where you kind of grew up. I'm assuming, you know, you grew up on the West Coast. And I think about that relative to your work. We were just talking a little bit about how, you know, we start making observations about other people's work. And I can't help but kind of relate it to thinking about landscape and I don't know, different, different things related to that. But hopefully I didn't just, uh, <laughs> you know, stub my toe there. Did you grow up in that area? Yeah, I grew up about an hour and a half from where I live now in a town called Gig Harbor, Washington. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it was a pretty small town, really densely wooded. You can kind of picture the Pacific Northwest, just like moss everywhere, very wet and uh, surrounded by water, just water everywhere. The sound is sort of that top northwest corner of Washington state. It's all islands and inlets and peninsulas. And yeah, that's where I grew up and lived in the same house my whole childhood for the most part and stayed there through high school and then in college through like only 10 years ago was other places. So I'm returning back to Seattle and Seattle growing up was sort of the big city, you know, when mm -hmm. we came to Seattle, we were tourists. So it's nice to, to really sort of settle in here and, and see it with new eyes and see it as an adult and an artist and make community here. Yeah, it's interesting kind of like coming back to a place, you know, especially if you've been traveling for a period of time. I did residencies for a number of years, so I was always yeah. out and about. And, you know, when you come back, it's just kind of always, you know, different. You see things differently, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And so were you someone that was super creative then when you were kind of growing up? Did you make a lot of stuff and, you know, destroy the house and, and whatnot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I mean, I love drawing. And my dad is a woodworker and, and that's what he did for a living. And the wood shop was just like steps from our door. So I think the line between wood shop and our house was like very blurred. Mm -hmm. You know, there was like trail of sawdust and making things was definitely prioritized in just my family's culture. And so drawing, just really working with your hands was something that was sort of expected, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really stick out as like an art kid. I just was really into it and drew all the time. And then I've got positive feedback for that. And that, you know, becomes a loop that I hear a lot of artists talk about. Like, sure. You know, you get recognized for being the kid who draws. Right, <laughs> and right. You sort of build that identity. And so, yeah, I just, I spent a lot of time out in the woods, spent a lot of time just like making things with wood, drawing on wood. It was really sort of revolved around wood in my childhood and then took drawing opportunities whenever I could. Um, and then in high school, just really prioritized that in terms of electives. And we had a, a great little public high school where I grew up that was had a strong like crafts program so that we had um like batik. We had a whole batik studio. Mm -hmm. So I was like working with wax and fiber and we had a raku kiln. We even did like a stained glass unit. So it was, I would say, like really focused a lot on just crafts and, and sort of the drawing aspects of two-dimensional art. But I never had a formal like painting training or mm -hmm. anything like that. Well, yeah, it's so interesting, too, because it seems like, you know, some programs they've got like, you know, <laughs> paper and pencils and then some of them, you know, especially nowadays, you know, or, you know, chock full of like a 3d printing lab or you know <laughs> right. whatever, whatever else that can kind of be kind of found it's always kind of interesting to me and so i would imagine then too that kind of like tactile kind of like working with your hands and 
you know, kind of getting used to kind of cutting things or, you know, oddly enough, my, my grandfather did stained glass. And so I have a little bit of experience with that. I was terrible at it, but I start thinking about that kind of, you know, relating to the way that even maybe you work now in terms of just, I don't know the approach, but you know, that'll be something interesting to kind of, you know, certainly break down. Yeah, I could see that too, you know, and just that the idea of puzzles and shapes and, and sort of like dominant forms. I think I've been there for a long time. Was that something then at a certain point, you know, you got that encouragement to the to the extent that you were like, oh, I've got to be a fine artist one day or what, what was your game plan, I guess, in, in college? Even though I was surrounded by people who made things like my family, my parents' whole social circle was consisted of like builders. And the reason we lived in Gig Harbor is because it was a small like boat builders paradise and mm-hmm. little fishing town. So sort of all of my adult role models made a living through their craft, but I didn't know anybody. I didn't know what contemporary art was, right? Or I didn't even really know the distinction between fine art. I don't think I had been to an art museum my whole childhood. Maybe I think the first time I went to one was maybe a field trip in, in late high school. So the idea of like being an artist for a living was I don't know. I think it it was more about the craft and less about the, you know, anything conceptual or contemporaries. But then in college, I went to a really small school in Oregon and the art department was also very small. And so when I went to register for classes freshman year, they were, you know, they said, oh, you can't get into an art class until you're a senior, you know, unless you become an an art major. So I just declared myself an art major right then and took as many as I could. And, and that just wasn't really a surprise to anyone in my family. It was like, of course, you're going to study art. Like that's, that's a definitely, um, you know, a valid way to live your life. When I thought ahead in terms of game plan, I, I always had teaching in mind too. I think education was always prioritized and I tutored a lot in high school and in college. And I think I get a lot of, a lot of satisfaction from that practice as well. And so sort of art and teaching moved sort of hand in hand through my, through my life from high school on. And then in undergrad, yeah, I just, I did a lot of figure drawing, I would say, and really fell in love with drawing and then also did a lot of ceramics. But the program, as I say, was really small. And so it didn't, I don't know how much it like pushed me into other arenas, but one thing it offered that I'm so grateful for is writing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like a a really highly focused school on writing. And so I just learned how to write, became comfortable with writing. And then that also, I think that has served me maybe better than anything else I studied Mm -hmm. there. Interesting. And I I guess, you know, to kind of think about some of those other experiences too, I mean, I would imagine then that you got maybe some exposure to some artists and, and maybe some ways of thinking that you hadn't kind of brought to it before since you were kind of so focused on the maybe craft side of it in high school? Yeah, it still was not a really um, strong education in contemporary art. There was some artists that sort of snuck into my conscious there. I remember we had a little campus museum, which is great, the Halle Ford Museum of Art. And Enrique Chagoya showed some of his artist books there. He works with Sharks Inc. Press in Colorado and, and teaches at Stanford. And he is you know, just like highly narrative, illustrative, and um, political works. And that was the first time I really understood what an artist book could do and what it could be and saw printmaking in that way of using the that printed mark, not as like the end, but as a way of telling the story. And so that 
blew my mind. I mean, that's like, I can, it's sort of one of those things. It's like, where were you when, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, sure. where were you when you first saw Enrique Chagoya? And I can just picture my, myself. And then I also was doing, you know, with my roommate and I was hanging out with theater kids a lot and we were making puppets and doing paper mache and all sorts of, I was just really open to any sort of craft at the time. And that kind of, that led me to um, learn more about William Kentridge and his puppet theater, the Handspring Puppet Company. And South Africa. So that was the other artist. Like those two really come to mind as my first introduction to contemporary art. Then I went to study abroad in South Africa and so sort of further looked into the context in which Kentridge was making work and then uh, learning more about African contemporary art. And that was my introduction to that and the curator on, on Wazer. Yeah, one of the first times I really started to understand how that lineage and like you know, the context that I will be making work in now. And so it was, I was late. I was a late bloomer, I will say. <laughs> you know, like it sort of took through college and, and stumbling on those experiences and those artists to understand that this is the world I wanted to be engaged in. Well, it's so interesting, the timing of this. Literally, I had a student ask me on Tuesday night, who is my favorite artist? And it's kind of like for me, like, what's your favorite book? Or, you know, what's your favorite yeah. movie? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And so the because I you know love so much stuff and the only thing that I could come up with is I saw a William Kintred show in 2002 in Chicago that just blew my mind. I mean mm-hmm. it was just like packed full of all the animation videos and all the drawings and I think I must have spent like three or four hours in there. Like I yep. literally watched all of them twice, you know, and it was just mesmerizing. Again, kind of interesting uh, coincidence there. So you're starting to kind of you know get exposed to some other art and things like that. How did you decide, I guess, where you wanted to, to go on and, and study for your uh, graduate degree? Well, I took a few years off. I think it was maybe five or six years okay. that I just, you know, I worked. Um, I taught art uh, in, like, community centers. I was also, like, a park ranger. I did seasonal work. I traveled some more. My husband was living in Japan, so... I went over to see him for a few months and just moved around. And then we ended up in Alaska and it was in Anchorage that I realized like, okay, I want to, I want to teach in higher education. And I also want to understand more what I'm doing with the art, you know, because at this point I was still just like making things, having fun, but really like I knew I needed more. I needed more understanding and I needed more direction and I just needed more concentrated time because I've always just worked a full-time job. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the reason for grad school is like an excuse to just be in the studio, right? And sort of carve out that time. At that point, I still hadn't really found printmaking in any true sense. I had been introduced to it briefly in college, but I I was away the semesters that like woodblock was taught. And I always think back and wonder like, if I had been there and found woodblock earlier, like where would I be? But um, mm-hmm. I happened to like miss that particular time it was taught. But in Anchorage, I found the University of Anchorage and I just joined as like an auditing non-traditional student took printmaking class with the mindset of building a portfolio to apply for graduate school because I I was really curious about it you know my my upbringing with wood and with carving tools and with wood tools and equipment and a shop just made the printmaking studio like feel so like such a natural fit mm-hmm. and using wood as a substrate and a matrix like made a lot of sense but I had never actually done the act of printing from a plate so as soon as I 
got in with that crew and Gary Collitz was the professor there and I just, it just fell in love. It totally clicked, started making books. I used all my like wax and batik sort of background and knowledge on the paper. So I jumped into printmaking with definitely like a mixed media and an alternative ways of printmaking angle mm-hmm. and worked there for a couple years in that print shop and built a portfolio to apply to graduate school with that and then applied all over and ended up going to St. Louis. So we moved from Anchorage to St. Louis and that's where I started grad school. You know, I know that they have a reputation for printmaking, though, too. So it seems like then you would be kind of in this, you know, environment where you're probably got a lot of different resources and all these different artists that are kind of working in that medium to kind of be able to bounce ideas around and and kind of really explore. Oh, yeah. I mean, going to Wash U was really, it was actually life changing for me. You know, I had a lot of catch up to do. I mean, I was sort of an older student. I mean, I was still in my 20s, but like there was a lot of people that were straight out of undergrad. And like I said, I didn't have this sort of background in contemporary art or even art history. And so I was just the one like furiously note taking like, okay, Joseph Boyce, like what? How do you spell that? You know, (laughs) just like looking it up, like writing down names as fast as I could, looking it up. And I was just super hungry and I was a sponge. And so I just had a blast. I we had amazing facilities. Uh, you know, the etching presses there were like five, six by 10 feet, I think, mechanized. So I was making huge, you know, six to eight foot long prints and working with amazing mentors. Lisa Blowski was there and Tom Huck and Tom Reed and Jana Harper. Being there, it introduced me to the level of sort of elegance, but also tension and really like controlling my mark in a way. And And then also just because the school is so highly resourced, they just brought in incredible visiting artists. And so I would say that that was a major part of my learning there was just who I got to have studio visits with. I mean, it was just such a privilege. I remember just, I was sitting with Judy Pfaff in my studio, just pinching myself. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Is this really my life? It just felt wild, you know, Mm -hmm. totally wild. And I never forgot how lucky I was to be there. So I just worked super hard and tried to learn as much as I could and lived in the book art studio. So really started to fall in love with letterpress and and artist books there as well. Well, and it strikes me too, obviously, you know, returning after, you know, kind of being on your own or kind of working with, you know, other, other print shops and other artists, I'm sure. But, you know, to kind of be in that environment, like you said, I mean, I would imagine it was just kind of like a whole new world that you're just like, you know, pretty much every week is like, this is the best week. (laughs) (laughs) So it really was, you know, and I, I was a TA and I did work study, but besides that, I just, I took out loans to live. So I also had that privilege of not like trying to hold down a job at the same time. Sure. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, maybe kind of figure drawing when, when you're an undergraduate, what kind of work are you kind of making around this time, I guess, in that initial start before they essentially throw it all in a dumpster and tell you to really get after it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I was making mostly woodcuts, and but mixed media. So they were still very figurative. So I think that figure drawing, in undergrad, I was doing a lot of like more stylized figures and illustrative work. I think if I if there had been like an illustration degree where I'd gone, I, I could easily have seen that being my path. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, I slowly moved away from the figure in grad school, but I started out very large figures, sort of social realism, like proletariat figures working, you know, so taking my like influence of boating and fishing and mm-hmm. woodworkers and sort of this like trades people and craft. I was just sort of like making scenes from my life, both in growing up and definitely um, our time in Alaska, which was really formative. So it was there. But then, you know, the figure gets like highly questioned. And, and I realized I was sort of running out of the the desire to to recreate those scenes. And, mm-hmm. and that sort of led me more to abstraction, sort of bigger gestures. There may be reference the land for sure. And then I also was like bringing in a lot more representational imagery, whether it was through collage or through drawing or then, then maybe you see now. I would imagine then too, that all kind of like led to, you know, like a, a thesis of some kind where again, it's like I said, I don't know why it's just, you know, always kind of inevitably kind of comes out that it's just like so different from where you started or, you know, certainly much more sophisticated than where you started, I guess, in that experience, you know? Yeah, definitely that, the latter. And, but, you know, my thesis was really about collage and collage as a a worldview, a way of like sort of making sense of our experiences Mm -hmm. and also artist books, but, you know, like Enrique Chagoya and William Kentridge, they were in there in my thesis. I'm very interested in, in sort of this ancestral line of one's own practice I mean, even though I don't, I wouldn't ever show those works that I made in undergrad, like I'm still <laughs> referencing those particular ideas and textures. And I can sort of see how the work that's being made now is, is sort of from that work. Like it's born into this long conversation of what I've been sort of experimenting with and curious about for, you know, 20 or 30 years. Yeah, well, and it strikes me too, then to kind of move more towards like a abstract language, you know, kind of gives you more play just for the visuals in terms of really kind of exploring things without having that limitation maybe of, of having to, to represent something, which is kind of like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. There's kind of like this mix between then collage and, and bookmaking. Uh, what, what kind of materials are you still kind of like drawn to? I mean, are they still you know, a lot of print-based materials, are they more three-dimensional or mixed media, like found things? or I sort of, I think, act like a found object artist or collector, but I'm also generating all of the found objects. So I'm like, first create the raw material and mostly everything you see eventually on the paper it has gone through the press at some point. Like I've made that texture or that monotype flat or that color. And then it finds its way or, you know, I incorporate into like a larger composed work or, or book arts. I do occasionally use found material, but that I haven't sort of made or generated myself, but I would say that happens less often. So I'm definitely paper focused. I have a lot of hopes of expanding that, you know, as time and life allows. But right now I and deep into that. I, I start with wood usually as the matrix of my printmaking. You know, I do a little sort of pronto lithography or um, collagraphs or sort of printmaking that's not wood-based, but but the woodblock feels like such an autobiographical symbol for me. And it also referenced, like you were saying at the very beginning, just the Northwest and where I'm from and place in terms of the trees and the landscape that 
it seems like um, it's still providing a lot of fodder for me and a lot of inspiration, just the bare wood and then also just the various papers that are printed from it. I guess to think about it relative to timeline and in terms of where you're at now. So, so what happened after graduate school? And again, I know that that could be like a, that could be like a (laughs) really long winding story, but I'm saying that because I also want to definitely, you know, start talking about your work again, your website, keldamartinson.com, tons of stuff to go check out. So definitely do that. But I definitely want to start talking about some of these. So how did, how did you get from, from there to where you are now? So after, um, you know, my husband's from Portland, Oregon, and, and I'm from up here. So we, we had our eyes set on kind of coming back after St. Louis. It was hard to leave, though, because that community was, it's really special. But, you know, we wanted to be a little bit closer to our own folks. And we headed right back, like right after graduation and uh, landed in the Seattle area, just outside the city limits at first. And um, I just started teaching and actually as a paraeducator in a kindergarten classroom in special education. And my husband's a special educator as well. So we just kind of dove into the K-12 scene here while I looked for other work. And then I was just pounded the pavement, driving I-5, you know, our freeway all over the Puget Sound, taking adjunct positions and working, designing curriculum, just like trying to string together full-time work. Luckily, I had a great like two-car garage where we were renting. And so was also, you know, trying to make big print still. I got a press right away. That was sort of my Mm -hmm. must do. And yeah, just tried to keep it going. It was an adjustment sort of going from graduate school, people are understanding what you're talking about. You're sort of given this grain of salt because they've Mm -hmm. seen your work evolve, you know? Sure, sure. And then you sort of get plopped down. And even though I'm from the area, like I didn't know a soul in Seattle in the art world. I had like high school friends and I definitely had community and stuff that were here, but, but no one in the art world. So that was, you know, just sort of trying to claw my way into some sort of you know, just people would know that I was here making things, you know, sure, so you sure. kind of like put yourself out there. You live out in the outskirts of town and you're in your two guard garage of a suburb of Seattle. And I wasn't on Instagram or anything. I don't even know if it existed, but that was an adjustment. But through teaching and through like community print shop, I found people and Seattle's a super supportive art community, very much lift each other up. It's been my experience and, you know, but it's taken about 10 years. Mm-hmm been here about 10 you know a little more than 10 years and finally now i feel like have established footing to build upon it takes time no absolutely you know i think again even myself i you know just relocated and, and finally have a house and sweet again just reminds me of that same thing that happens when you uh you know, get your first job after school, you kind of have like this identity crisis where you're like, I'm not, a, yes. not in the studio making work. And so, you know, moving to, you know, different places and then coming back somewhere, it's like, how do I re-engage this? And, you know, it's weird. Cause I think that's always something that is evolving too. And I, I feel like, you know, very literally like right now I'm doing that same kind of thing with where I'm at, you know, in terms of trying to decide, you know, fun things to kind of do moving forward or, you know, looking for kind of creating opportunities and, and things like that. And I guess to kind of actually bring it back to you, you know, one of the other things that I had noticed is that you also kind of do like a number of, uh, you know, curated shows and um, have a lot of interest in that. Is that something that started to kind of get developed as you were kind of like engaging with more people from that community and, and starting to kind of build relationships with other artists? 
Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I think curating for me feels like part of the practice for sure. Like a, it's a necessity creative wise to sort of organize these larger, more far reaching projects or like ways that work is collected. And I have always enjoyed sort of creating opportunities, like you said, not just for myself, but more so for others and, and as ways of connecting. Like in graduate school, I I became friends with someone just by chance, like one of the first days of living there that was in the MFA for poetry. And so sort of the, the whole cohort of writers and poets, and, you know, I have an interest in writing and literature anyway, but we became tight and we would do cross studio visits. We would go to their readings and, you know, I would sort of organize uh, faculty visiting lectures. I just sort of enjoy that role of like creating platforms for folks. And so when I moved out here, um, I met someone in Burien, which is this town just south of Seattle that we are living, uh, who said, you know, I have this this the, like little house in the woods that I want to curate some shows in. Um, I'm interested in artist books. And I said, great, like, let's do a show. So that was my first like full, like solo curated show um, on contemporary artist books. And I think it was mostly like people from St. Louis, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, cause you just kind of like lean on your friends, you know, when you're getting started. So, and then from there, I think it's just, I've just consistently done that, whether it's a portfolio exchange with printmaking, you know, the technique and discipline of printmaking makes that pretty easy um, in terms of additioning and sharing work and doing a group uh, trade. And then this past spring, I co-curated a show with Paula Rebsum, who's an installation artist that I also teach with and, and a good friend. And, and that show was really exciting, something that been, I've been thinking about for a long time, which is just like the work that artists' mothers are making sort of the more private work or the work on the side. And that's not necessarily their, their main studio work when they're given the time and the space to create, but more sort of like the work that's made in these in-between spaces, like that it's got a little bit more like madness and fury Mm -hmm. in it. You know, Mm -hmm. there's like a little strangeness or, but it was cool show. It was, you know, in the pandemic. So it was weird in that way, but I'm super glad that happened. And yeah, curating is, is tricky and it's, but it really, I get a lot from it. It seems like we kind of have these different, especially nowadays, these different ways of having to, you know, combine all of these different aspects to to make a trajectory or rarely just find somebody that only does one thing and there's not, you know, a handful of things that they do. Mm. And that's always just kind of something that's really interesting to me. We're like, again, I'm not really collaborative, which sounds hilarious as I'm talking to you. (laughs) Certainly collaborative in that regards. But, you know, like I became a musician during the pandemic, which is super weird to me. I know. Um, I heard that. I've heard your music. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 weird. But I think of that also like as a collective or, you know, co-curating or thinking about things Mm -hmm. like that. That's also really exciting because I think those are things that kind of change something up for you in your studio or maybe you know maybe there is that work that you don't really kind of push or talk about but then you know you have these experiences where you're you know working with other artists and then you start kind of thinking like oh yeah maybe you know maybe this could be a really cool you know thing to start including or start working through or I don't know I would imagine that there's a lot of ideas that kind of spring from from just that process Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that's where the creative necessity part of like curating is for me. I got a studio visit where this Carrie Skanga was visiting and said, like, you know, you're interested in these 
like the collection of small gestures being enough, right? Or like making a new system. And I am really interested in that. What is the work we make, you know, when we're trying to think of a new system or like you're in a pandemic and you're becoming a musician, you know, you are. That work is like more charged and more interesting because it's like functioning in this totally compressed and restrained space Mm -hmm. that's like difficult in so many other ways. And so I love thinking about art making and like this idea of trajectory and that like making some kind of new system like okay well what would it mean if just everyone contributed a little something and maybe that is big enough or grand enough or like I partake in this artist residency and motherhood project that Linka Clayton started and for me it's just these small gestures that I document in the studio like a collage of overlapping materials but I might not like actually glue it down or or you know commit to it Mm -hmm. but like is that enough right like that sort of is more than just the two materials touching it's like also a speaks to that like moment that's fraught with like the tension of not having enough time or the tension of not having enough space or the tension of being a caregiver or the oppression of being in a pandemic. Sure, sure. (laughs) So yeah, I think like these collaborative ways are just, they're exciting. You know, however they turn out, like it's more about that act of doing something different that I find really gratifying. Well, and to think about that related to, you know, practice, I mean, is that something where you might be given an opportunity and you have to kind of come up with something or, you know, like I'm especially thinking about, you know, collaging all these different materials and, you know, kind of producing your own materials, essentially, like you kind of describe them almost like found things um, in that sense, but you're, you're making them, you know, you still have to kind of like run things through a press. And I would imagine mm-hmm. then you might have some times where you're kind of focused on maybe more collage and then maybe you have an opportunity to do a book and then that changes up that, that process a little bit. But I guess maybe kind of talk about the relationship between bookmaking and then the collage focused work. They inform each other, you know, and they are sort of different sides of the same page in a way, you know, for me, books are interesting because they're inherently like about stories just by the physical object and how we like their significance in our lives, you know, is often to, to read or to sort of gain insight into another story. And so I think that's just so rich that working in that way sort of is a nice like shortcut to some conceptually interesting territory. And I'm really interested in books that, at least the ones that I make, they don't always, you can't always walk all the way through them. Like I oftentimes will freeze them, like a, it'll, I'll frame a book that's just open to one page, or it will be just a one page book that folds as an accordion. I like that sort of inert potential, that same like sort of space of wondering if there could be more, if we could do more in that book form. Like you could turn the page, but it's, you know, it's frozen or it's displayed in this way that sort of lets you know there's, there's more there, but you can't necessarily access it. So I like when artist books get a little bit closer to the print, like almost the, the singular page and then with my prints I'll collage to bring it back to collage like 
some of the material will lift or it will be, you'll be able to physically turn it, which is really hard to capture digitally when I'm documenting my work. But a lot of the little things that look like flaps maybe, or edges, you, you could physically lift if you were in front of it, or you could turn over. And again, I just think that metaphorically, there's a lot there in a page of a book what's in the front of it is as soon as you turn it over, it becomes like, it's no longer the front, it's the back. And I just like that. It sounds obvious to say, but I, I hope I'm articulating like a little bit of the meat there of that idea, which is just like this perspective shift, you know, that I, that I'm trying to get visually through my compositions, but also through the material, like that you can sort of uh, stand from another place, look at it from another angle. So I see books in that way. I'm not like a traditional bookbinder by any means. I, I think my favorite format for the book is just the super simple accordion fold or even the loose leaf broadsheets. I also really just appreciate and enjoy working in more ephemeral books like, you know, zines or with materials that might not last forever, you know, newsprint. To maybe highlight one of these, you know, recent artist books, let's talk a little bit about uh, Backyard Moon, A Love Letter. And again, that could be found on your website, keldamartinson.com and abundance of pictures there and other works. So maybe talk a little bit about this. How do you set up something like this or or maybe kind of guide us a little bit about how this opportunity starts and, and what the process would be like? I had a show at Jay Reinhardt Gallery in Seattle, which is where I'm represented. And it was my first time having a solo show of that size since being a parent, you know, and I have a four and an eight year old. So it was a it was an exciting opportunity and it was in the pandemic and so it was you know definitely tough to get studio time in and I found myself making like these like two body one were these sort of larger more formal prints with these bold gestures and then more like highly sort of labored uh, many many times through the press and and then the other body of work that I showed at the same time were these very simple, almost like one action collages on found newsprint. And the newsprint was from my father-in-law's house. Where he had a heart attack the summer before last, which he survived, thankfully. But we had to move him out of his longtime house. And he was a collector, we'll say. <laughs> so found all this gorgeous newsprint lined paper from probably the 60s or 70s and it was still it was just this rich like fawn gold color you know it hadn't like faded in any way it was just so lovely so I wanted to really mark this time with sort of that just actions it was felt meditative it was quick it wasn't highly labored over it was just really sort of this natural movement I saw it as a as a book but they were singular pages all framed separately Mm-hmm. And then as a way of connecting those two bodies of work within the same gallery space, I wanted to make an artist book. And that artist book sort of came for me as the bridge. It also used some found material from this like book about space from the 60s, which you can see is lined. Um, if you do look at it on the website, it's like the, the clamshell case is lined with that paper that was also from my father-in-law's house. And it uses some of the same textures and the wood blocks and the colors the richness of that, the saturation and the texture from the larger prints, but sort of approaches it with this freshness of the one action collages that I just sort of considered like almost 
a way of note taking, like quick sketches, and brings it together. And so it's just meant to sort of present it in a very like formal way, like an artifact would be. You know, it has this crafted like clamshell case for it. You know, but it's also just flips through almost like a flip book or like a field journal. It's sort of the size of a of a hug or something. It's like when you when it's open as a spread, it's sort of like that's how big it would be is like the size of another person's, you know, it's like, that's, that's like, I think about just scale and, and with artist books in terms of intimacy, you know, is it something you're holding in your hand? Is it something you have to like use both arms to navigate? And it was, you know, it was COVID. So we were like, we're like, do we let people touch the book? You know, and like, do we put gloves? It was like, ew, you know? Sure, sure. It's always tricky how to display artist books in a way that is inviting and allows for the interaction. I think it was my favorite piece in the show. Just, it was the last piece that I made, you know, it's just like in the nick of time right before the show opened. But to me was really sort of about this just like letting go and using art as a way of healing and like working through sort of the trauma of the last year and a half that we've experienced. To think about it related to some of the other print bodies, you know, there's a series from a couple of years ago called All I Can Do. Mm. And it's really interesting because it kind of starts to break that format of, of like a page or, you know, something that says rigid. There's all these kind of like curved edges. And it strikes me again that they're very similar to maybe some of the forms that you're using, but, you know, not in that kind of rectangle format or, you know, square format, you know, is that just something literally like where it'll be kind of specific for a specific time that you might be kind of shifting gears or, you know, you kind of jump back to an artist book and then, you know, think about the way that it relates to prints or maybe you find, again, all of this gorgeous paper. I'm, I'm really just kind of interested in, again, that kind of process of how you might shift from, one approach to another or how they also kind of circle back around. Like you maybe been kind of talking a little bit about some of that old undergraduate work that nobody will ever see, um, <laughs> you know, cause you always find, I don't know that there's all these, these different layers, I guess. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, huge benefit of printmaking is just, it's a generative practice. Like just by nature of making one thing, you end up having a ghost print or like cast offs or, you know, so anytime you set out to make one, thing you sort of end up with this detritus or studio debris that's quite useful you know and rich and has texture on it and so as a collage artist there's never any shortage of material and more is being made all the time with the all i can do section of the website some of them started out as these temporary collages that i was doing in this the studio documentation um, as part of the artist residency and motherhood and that all i can do is really referencing like i have five minutes and this is all i can do is is um you know combine these studio castoffs in this way and they were pretty small you know like i don't know 11 by 15 at the largest something would speak to me there, the combination of shapes or the composition, and then I would use that as sort of a template. So it, it's maybe hard to to see it, but there's one called What I Meant to Say. Mm-hmm. That's a, you know, a collage of little studio scraps. The, the, there was something about the composition that I thought could be larger. And so I actually blew it up you know I think I even projected it um, onto a large piece of plywood and then used that 
particular combination of shapes to make a woodblock. And so what I, I don't know if we've talked fully about the process yet, but I'll, you know, I'll think of a composition of base composition for the woodblock and I'll draw it on a large piece of plywood and then I'll cut out the shapes like a wood puzzle and then ink all the shapes individually and then lay them back on the press. And so they sort of fit back together and then I'll go and collage back on top of that. But that what I meant to say, tiny little temporary collage became the compositional template for, you know, a much like a 30 by 45 piece or a larger woodblock called It's All True, which is the top left image there. So it informs each other, the small work and these different ways of working, like they're pretty direct lead into one another, even serving as like studies for one another. Well, and it's interesting too, to think about like, there's a richness to a lot of the grayscale that you print and work through in terms of color, you know, and obviously in maybe like the most current work, there's a lot more pops of these intense colors, but then, you know, that'll be something that you kind of really kind of explore in a maybe low threshold kind of range of color too, that, I don't know, it's just really interesting you know, how you start kind of noticing things that are really subtle, I guess, you know, and that's something that kind of relating this back to teaching, that's something that I kind of really try to imbue in, in terms of classes is just kind of finding, you know, it could be the texture of wood grain or something like that. But I mean, there's just such lovely kind of qualities to the way that you kind of start printing these out and kind of working with these you know, colors that are sometimes really subtle and, and really kind of interesting, I guess, create a question out of this. Um, <laughs> how do you how do you think about color when you're when you're working through something that might be more minimal versus, you know, maybe something where you're going to start kind of coming back to it or having some more bolder colors? Yeah, I think definitely influenced by place. A lot of the grayscale is certainly just being here in Seattle and, and like the grays and the blues are sort of what we see for the most part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the most recent body of work I made down in Central Oregon in the summer at a residency and it was, you know, totally palette wise, completely different. Desert, high desert, hot oranges and blue, blue, blue sky and red lava rock. And I try to be like experimental with color. I try to just take risks. I try to make it a little bit uncomfortable for me and then come up with something that feels like maybe more difficult to work with and then try to find the harmony in it or like how it combines with other colors. So just sort of taking that, trying to get to the edge of of where that color is, maybe teeters on beauty and and not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and then it's sort of like whatever inks sort of jump off the shelf at me I'll start to mix them and and go for it I think with color I'm I like to think about value more than and love to sort of make sure there's a lot of contrast and then also a lot of transparency I mean I'm really quite open and and I feel you know I was asked this question like are you more intuitive when it comes to color or more academic or theoretical? And I think it's, I like to think about intuition as instead just like countless hours and years of experience that you can draw on this ability to make decisions really quickly that sometimes feel intuitive, but are pretty informed by actual experience. And so I will just sort of go with it. I do always return to the grayscale and black and white. And I think that's just a nod to traditional woodblock arts, you know, and just that woodblock texture is, it's so graphic and it's, it's so beautiful in the grayscale. So I usually don't stray too far from that, or I definitely return to it whenever I'm starting out as in a woodblock. Well, and maybe one specifically I'd love to talk about is this piece called Map, which again has this ridiculously mm. hot, you know, red 
ground, or at least it seems like a ground, but, you know, is that something, as you kind of describe, where you might just kind of start with a color and then, you know, as you're working through that process, just kind of respond to it, add to it, you know, shift some things around and, and I guess, figure out a way to make it, you know, work for the print? Yeah, exactly. So I took that hot red and then that that fluorescent pink and actually just started with those two next to each other as sort of two monotype flats that I had printed. And then, you know, but it was too hard or too simple or something wasn't, was off with it. Right. So it's this act of sort of like, okay, I made this decision in the studio and like I made this bed. Now I got to sleep in it. Right. Like I got (laughs) to figure this out and like resurrect it. And, and I love that though, because then the tension is already there. And so, yeah, I just worked with the woodblock on that particular piece, trying to create some depth to it and and some space. And I think I'm really interested in in surface tension and in surface and in texture, which doesn't always come across digitally. But I'm I think about my surfaces as like the way you would think about a mirror, like your six inches from the mirror, but you're like 12 inches from your own reflection, right? Like there's this other sort of container of space on the other side. And so I'm sort of wanting to create these like windows or, you know, portals or like ways of entering this deeper space in the two-dimensional realm that I think color and texture and opacity sort of help me get there, help me achieve that way that you can enter the work. You know, maybe another one to kind of highlight that could be kind of interesting is this uh, lava rock mountaintop piece, which again, kind of has that quality of kind of like, yeah, like a portal, a doorway, an entryway, and, you know, clearly has a referential kind of like landscape element to it. Yeah, that's one of the ones I made in Oregon. And that particular red, I was just surrounded by that lava rock, like sort of rusted red ochre in the high desert area, which is not ever around me where I live in Seattle. And so I wanted to, to get at that. You know, this composition just sort of unfolded. This is sort of a larger piece. I think it's like 50 inches. And so it felt very much like grand forms, like the mountain top that I allude to in the title. And also when I, while I was there, the Grand View fire was happening in Central Oregon. I mean, I'm sure you heard mm-hmm. a bit about all the fires in Oregon. Um, it wasn't the super large one on the southern border of Oregon, but it was only 10 miles away and burning fast. And so I was really thinking a lot about just this scorched earth and the smoke and um, trying to let those forms and and that idea of like our atmosphere sort of be represented in what I was making at the time as a response. Well, and that's kind of interesting to think about it. You know, you described being informed by place and, you know, making an observation, maybe even as just as simple as a a color that's surrounding you. But then also, you know, you could think about something that's happening live and and seeing forests kind of burned by fire. You know, I mean, again, that's got to be you know, something that certainly is very sensory and and might kind of direct something in in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And to not comment on it felt a bit disingenuous, you know, I mean, here I was in this like, really amazing chance for a residency. It was a ranch and there were animals getting evacuated to the ranch coming in every day and there's haze everywhere. I mean, it felt, it felt very, very sad, you know? And so, it's like, how do you move forward as an artist <laughs> mm-hmm. when the world is on fire and like being your genuine self and also sort of just marking time, you know, and what's happening in the world. And so that's, yeah, how this came about it. It was not something I had sketched out 
prior or planned in any way. The nature of your work, it allows you to, to jump around too, so that if something isn't kind of like sticking, you know, maybe you come back to another piece, which is always kind of exciting. Or, you know, like even I'm sure there's a little bit of tension of having all these wonderful pieces of paper printed up and then, you know, maybe it doesn't work out at that scale and it finds itself into a, a book. A hundred percent. Yep. That's exactly what happens. (laughs) I'm okay with it now. You know, like I think maybe I dream about bigger spaces, more wall space, installation space, like the ability to to work in different mediums in different ways. But I'm really trying to understand and be okay with the fact that like right now, that's where my practice is at. I can skip around if something doesn't work. It makes its way into the collage. I mean, as a parent and as a teacher, and you know how much school and teaching really eat up your time and creative bandwidth. And it feeds you too, but it but it takes up a lot, right? And so for me right now, I just want to keep moving, keep making. And collage is this very forgiving and generative way of allowing that to happen. Yeah. And oddly enough, too, there's this other piece that I'm just noticing called uh, Where We Left Off that incorporates some actual kind of more recognizable elements of like a landscape maybe but i like how again you know you kind of almost don't see it necessarily right away it doesn't hit the same way because of the color palette you know maybe set against something that's you know very vibrant or you know almost kind of blending into maybe some other shapes and so that's again something that must allow you a lot of room too in terms of just kind of playing around with new things or you know hey let's let's give this a shot that one in particular is a good example of what I was referencing earlier in the artist books is like this, this particular piece actually sits as an accordion. It's not photographed that way, but I see it as a four page book. That's just sort of laid out flat. There's like a flap on the right that can actually like lift and turn. And and then this also is an example of sort of digging back through time. And this photograph is from the time I spent in South Africa. And so, yeah, just sort of this, like, the work continues to sort of pop in and out, you know, sure, sure. <laughs> decades later, sort of through paper hoarding, better living <laughs> through paper hoarding, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine you must have piles and piles I of, know. of stuff. So, <laughs> yes. so thinking about like the future, and I say this because it's so ambiguous, you know, I don't, I don't know what that's going to be like in terms of uh, the pandemic and things like that. But I would imagine, obviously, you're finding time to kind of work in the studio. And, and I don't know, are there things that you're kind of working towards in the future, new projects, maybe that we could kind of highlight real quick? Yeah, you know, um, I'm kind of coming off of a of sort of a bigger year for me recently. And so right now I'm, I'm in a period of just kind of enjoying not having a looming deadline at the moment, but I've got a couple applications out there and, and hopes that things will sort of come to fruition. I, I'm sure I'll have another show at uh, Jay Reinhardt maybe in the next year. I'd love to show this work that I made in, in central Oregon. And then I'm also just kind of, in terms of what I'm working towards, just trying to focus on the studio practice and also just like some rest and some repair from this past year, just like, I know I'm not alone and just the exhaustion. And so just trying to like recalibrate, think about where I want to go and move with my work and keep pushing. And so, you know, I, I kind of keep the news on Instagram or on, on my website and I'd love for, you know, any listeners that are interested in talking more to get in touch. Um, yeah, this has been really fun. At Kelda underscore Jean, is that correct on Instagram? Yep. That's right. 
obviously people can also check out your work. It's uh, keldamartinson.com. So again, plenty of work there to check out and peruse. Again, this has been really great. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time, especially during a busy week to to sit down and, and talk to me all about your work. It's been great, you know, learning more about you. And again, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Dave. This has been really such a treat. Thanks again to Kelda for joining me for a great interview. I hope that everyone goes and checks out our website, keldamartinson.com. And once again, be sure to follow on Instagram where there's tons of news and posts of new work and things in process. That's at Kelda underscore Gene. Another reminder that if you enjoyed today's episode, there are plenty more available on studiobreak.com. Each of those posts there have images of the artist's artwork, and you can find links to their websites. You can listen right there on studiobreak.com, or just click those subscribe buttons, and then that way you've got a new podcast to listen to, and of course something to fill your studio with thoughts and ideas while you're working, and maybe throw some questions your way. As always, you can earn some karma points and help spread the word about Studio Break, or maybe you want to share this episode, that would be awesome. You can leave a review, which is super helpful, and of course, just say hello. You can find us on Facebook, so please like our page there. You can also find us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and of course, be sure to say hello on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. Instagram's also a great place to check out some of the artists that we've recently featured on the podcast. So recently featuring Danny Joe Rose III, who makes these amazing paintings that are packed full of color. Joshua J. Johnson, who makes these really amazing prints that it can take anywhere up to a year to make. And he adds things from daily life and observations, pop culture. That's episode 263. We also featured Anne Bloss for episode 262. She's a painter from the Chicagoland and does a number of installations. We talk about that. And there's plenty in the archives. Even if you just dip back a few months to March, episode 250 featured... Paulo Arau, who makes these amazing, colorful fabric paintings, so definitely check out those archives, plenty to listen to. Music for today's episode features Golden Shadow, which is a band that consists of myself on guitar, Ben Cohan on drums, and Brett Beery on bass. Our intro song also featured Decals members Brigham Hagerman and Clint Parrish, so thanks to them for joining us for that song. And if you're interested in any more about that, we did a podcast talking all about this band that was formed over the pandemic, Golden Shadow. That's episode 261, so check that out. It's super fun. You can also find Ben on Instagram. That's Studio. You can check out paintings there. Brett Beery is a musician and producer. You can find him on Instagram as well, at Brett Beery. And he also has a bunch of music on Bandcamp. That's at bbeery on Bandcamp. And you can also find the decals there as well. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, head on over to davidlinaway.com. There's plenty up there, and you can also find me in a number of places. You can find me on Facebook, you can find me on Twitter, at David Linaway, and on Instagram, at David Linaway as well. Please be sure to say hello and follow. It's always great hearing from listeners and other artists, especially that are out there working away in the studios. If you did enjoy today's episode, please just say hello. It's always great hearing from listeners and hearing these little quips and insights, so we always love hearing that. And there we go, episode 265. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that your studios are certainly productive and there's all sorts of great things going on creatively. Stay safe. We'll talk to you real soon.